0: Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Soprano. This is episode number seventy-four of the Tartan Talk series, and joining us is Don Knott. Don has been a golf course architect since the nineteen seventies, and he's seen a lot of things in a lot of different places, and he tells a lot of great stories on this podcast. Don is also a past president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, and he's still doing work with his partner Gary Lynn. But before we get going with Don, we'd like to thank. Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a giant supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad that they've been on board with this podcast for such a long time, and we're glad that Don was able to take so much time to join us. Well, Don, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. Uh, The first thing I want to get out of the way here is I noticed this quote on your website. A great golf course does not consume energy. It creates energy. Explain what that quote means and how has it guided your work throughout the course of your career. Well,
1: I'll, I'll attempt to explain it. Um, it sounds, sounds like an easy question, but it's a difficult answer. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about when you walk off a great golf course, uh, you want to come back. You're, you're excited. You're energized. You're saying There's a lot of things out there I need to play it a second and third time. I guess it's probably not unlike seeing a movie or a great book. But it's, so a great of course would have a little mystery to it, uh, a little bit of unknown, uh, some, something that doesn't come to the eye immediately for the, for the really good skilled player. You know, little subtle differences on where to play the ball in the green and Breaks of putts, and for the unskilled player, just um, enough mystery that they want to come back and say, "Hey, I played that hole before, and I really know I have to hit it left and not right." So that's what I mean. If it's a course you want to go back and play, if not immediately, the next day or coming back around. round. As opposed to the opposite, which is just a not particularly interesting course all out in front of you. Nothing particularly mysterious about it and uh, not on a particularly interesting site. But you just walk off sort uh, of uh, tired at the end of the day and say, well, I'll play it once, but that wasn't up. Uh, but, of course, great courses are and have to be on great sites, and those sorts of circumstances don't exist very often. But, I mean, I, I, I sort of think I remember the quote, you know, uh, define pornography well nobody can define it but they sort of know it when they see it uh, great course is like that too I and mean, it's almost impossible to define but when players play them they come off knowing they played a great
0: golf course so I guess you can create energy on two different types of golf courses obviously a new course where you're the first one to touch the site and you can maybe take a course that didn't have energy in a renovation and give it energy first with the new course when you're trying to create that energy and vibe, what are some things you consider throughout your career when you've gotten on that piece of land that nobody's built a golf course on before?
1: Well, uh, you, you look. Of course, you start looking for opportunities on the site, and you know, great sites are hard to come by. Most most golf sites are on fairly pedestrian, average sort of terrain with not necessarily great views, and they're. A completely different animal actually take a better skilled architect to produce a nice course on a on a poor side uh, than it does to produce an average course on a good side um, but you're looking you're looking for a natural all golf course architects look for a natural natural features to design something around um, but the real key, of course, is to pick up 18 interesting holes, not just one or two around a wonderful ravine, and the others aren't particularly interesting. Uh, so I, I sort of equate it uh, a juggler. You know, he picks up a couple of balls, and he gets pretty good at that, and he adds a third, and then he's got them going, he adds a fourth, and they're all in the air, and adds a fifth, and keeps going until he gets all of the pieces all of the pieces simultaneously um, juggled and and relating to each other and some sort of equilibrium, and then, then you know you've got uh, you've got a nice a nice project and a nice golf course on your hands.
0: Then, how about an existing one? When you've worked on a renovation project or revitalization, ha- what are some steps you take to create that energy on a place that maybe lacked it or um, had it in the past and doesn't have it anymore? Well, it depends,
1: of course, on how much freedom you have. Yeah. It's
0: completely
1: re- rebuild, rebuild the place. Uh, that's one thing. But most remodeling jobs are not that. Most remodeling jobs are solve solve the problem that we've we know we've had or we've learned we've had over the last four or five years. And I mean, in some cases, you're going in and they're saying, you know, we've got one hole in the course that nobody likes and it's problematic. But then still you're, you're generally restricted to a fairly defined envelope, maybe even a very similar routing to the original So it's a difficult task to do to come into a course that um, is not particularly interesting, interesting and come out with something spectacular. You can certainly improve almost any course and probably almost any goal. Uh, But it's a a, a difficult thing to really make a dramatic dramatic difference unless you've got the freedom and the budget to uh, completely rebuild the place.
0: Don, going back to the start of your career, where was your first project? When was it, and what do you remember about that site and the golf on that site and the people that you encountered?
1: Well, of course, when you start out in this business, you don't you don't take on a project from scratch on your own. You are usually working with with another architect doing doing office uh, office duties, either doing grading plans or drafting or um, landscape planting plans. Uh, so the first ones you really get involved in are typically several years later, where you're actually taking charge of the routing and, and the entire design from day one on and on through the opening of the golf course. And so the first time, I mean, I started this business in 73 when I got out of graduate school, but the first projects I actually did on my own were in the late late, late 70s, you know. Uh, I can remember um, working at um, Hawaii at uh, McKenna and Keystone Ranch in Colorado and Beaver Creek in uh, Colorado did a course in the Philippines Galapagos where we traveled around the site on horseback and those sorts of things you remember both Beaver Creek and um, and uh, Keystone were on spectacular sites with spectacular views and settings and,
0: but it, yes
1: it's it's usually the site you remember and and the clients uh, a lot of a lot of my clients in the early years, probably most of them were big corporate clients, and when you're dealing with project managers, uh, occasionally you'll get the individual, small, uh, one-of-a-kind guys that want to build a golf course, uh, a unique uh, personality, and those 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 are fun projects and always special projects.
0: What, what did you learn in the office? I mean, a little bit different now, maybe the, the architects getting into the business don't spend a few years in the office before they got in the field. What what did being in the office and drawing up plans teach you about the, the business and the industry?
1: Well, drawing up plans is a lot of time-consuming work, of course, but uh, the nice, nice thing I always learned and enjoyed, uh, I did a lot of work with grading plans and drainage plans, and when you're actually doing the drawing yourself, you're thinking about, you're visualizing that, contour, that topography, that design
0: in their head.
1: And I still, to this day, like to do my own drawings because you're not just drawing lines that somebody said draw. You're actually thinking about what it is you're drawing and what it's going to look like in the field. You say you're constantly designing. So when you, when I do my own drawing, I'm thinking about the whole and how do I improve it now? Nah. The line I'm about to draw is... Is not really where it should be, I'm going to change it and I'm going to modify it. Or if you turned that over to a draft, draftsman, you would lose that. The draftsman would draw what you handed him to draw without thinking of how to improve it. So I learned early on when I was drawing to constantly think about how to change things or improve things and go to the project architect and say, hey, what if we did A, B, or C, and I'd discuss it with them. And, um, hopefully improve the product if we went along. Well, I, I you know, I worked for, in you know, those days, the Jones operation, which was one of the biggest yeah. firms in the business. You know, this business is not, not huge firms. The biggest ones are 10 people or 12 people. You know, most of them are one person, two person, three people. And so a big firm was 10, 10 people, which four four designers and a couple of administrative People and a couple of
0: business and project uh, development people. But, yeah, you you learn from all of those sources. So, Don, you're the first person we've ever had on the podcast that was a collegiate swimmer. I'm confident of that. You competed at California Berkeley. Explain your background with that sport, but then also get into how and when golf entered your life.
1: Okay, well, I... I retired from swimming at the end of my sophomore year um, and decided to become a landscape architect, which was a fairly demanding uh, major at that time. So I concentrated on that. Also, that was Vietnam War era, so I joined uh, ROTC at the end of my sophomore year and went into that program and consumed time. So I only swam for the first two years of college, but I didn't play golf growing up. I played other sports in high school: uh, football, basketball, baseball in the summer. Sw- swimming was my primary sport. Uh, went on to college to do swimming, as you mentioned, and didn't actually start golf until I actually uh, I got out of the military uh, and went back to graduate school at Cal to get a master's in building architecture. Started playing golf uh, and fell in love with the game got hooked on it immediately. I used to put my clubs over my back and take my motorcycle up to Tilden Park, above Berkeley campus, and play golf. And at the end of my first year of graduate school, I said, Well, I'm going to go look for jobs. There were a couple of golf architects in the Bay Area, Bob, Bob Graves and um, Bob Jones, who were both operating in the Bay Area. So I knocked on their doors and was fortunate to get a summer job at the Jones operation. Um, at the end of that summer, uh, they said, how would you like to come back full-time when you got out of graduate school? I said, well, I'll think about it. I like architecture. I might be going rather do buildings. But I ended up going back after graduate school and have been doing it ever since. So I was one of those like... Anybody in a small profession, you have to be at the right place at the right time and sort of fall into it. But I, I, I wasn't planning, to; didn't know anything about it growing up.
0: What about golf course architecture intrigued you?
1: Well, I, I, I was always intrigued with design and outdoor spaces, which is why I studied landscape architecture, and clearly golf is is that. And so the challenge in producing Interesting golf course design would intrigue me. Almost any design subject intrigues me, but certainly being outdoors, I was always an outdoor person. My dad was an outdoor person, a lot of hiking, camping, fishing, hunting growing up. So that that intrigued me, and uh, still does.
0: What was the, the golf scene like in the Bay Area in the late 60s and early 70s when you were coming through? Um, who were some of the people you met, and what were some of the courses you got to go see and play?
1: Well, of course, Central Coast of California is full of great courses, but most of them are. The big ones are private, exclusive clubs, so getting to play them is not an easy task until you've been in the business for a while and know know enough people that might be members of these places. Um, but the you know, thing is, most of the great golf courses were around at the time i was getting in the business in 1973 uh olympic olympic club you know all in the pebble beach courses that uh, tiempo they were all around um so i don't i don't from that point of view i don't know that it's changed much uh there a lot of a lot of newer courses coming online and in, in that era as you certainly know were real estate-oriented. Most golf courses in that era were being built to sell houses, uh, not necessarily because there was a demand for golf. Most most of what we did in the Jones office in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or, or I'd say 90, 95 percent was based on real estate and part of a real estate project. Rarely really did you get a standalone golf course on, on its own site that was that was Well, I take that back, that was common in Japan, but certainly wasn't common here in the United States.
0: Who were some of the people you met coming through the ranks and worked work closely with?
1: Yeah, well, when I started, uh, Bob Jr. had been here on the West Coast for a number of years. He came out here Juneau, to go to graduate school at uh, Stanford, at a law school at Stanford, and ended up opening a West Coast office with a, well, a Crank Jones organization, uh, his father mm-hmm. being the, the main the main person in that organization, but Bob Jr. started a West Coast office when they were doing, they were in the process of doing things like Spyglass Hill and Mauna but uh, I got there just after, oh, Mike, Mike Paulette was hired about a year before I arrived, and then, My name is Jerry Martin, Jerry Baird, has just recently started, the firm is starting to do a lot of overseas work, and we're taking on us young designers to handle that. Uh, So I got there in 73, worked as a summer student in 72, and and then shortly after after I arrived uh, uh, some of the senior guys, there was a guy named Don and there was a guy named Terry Storm that were both there, but they both left within two years of my arrival. And I the, then there was a slowdown in, in the Gulf. In the early 70s, That was, I don't know, it's called a recession, but it's certainly a slow period. And John's run, ran an operation in southern Spain in uh, Plengarola, and, and I was asked, would you like to go over to Spain and work in Europe for couple of years. I said, sure. So off I went to Spain in about 74, 75 north of Cabell Robinson. I don't know if you've spoke with Cabell Robinson. He, he's quite a sharp fellow and would be entertaining for you to interview. But Cabell still lives in Spain. So he and I worked together in south, south of Spain and throughout Europe for a couple of years uh, under under Robert Crenshaw Sr.'s uh, operation. And then, then when I returned. When I returned, we started to get act, quite a bit of activity in Asia. And that's where, um, uh, so soon after, soon after I returned, Gary Gary Lynn, my current partner, came on board about 1978. Uh, he was a K-State graduate, and shortly after that, in uh, '81, and I think Kyle Phillips, also a K-State graduate, was. Got right on board, yeah. uh, and then about the same period, Kyle came on shortly after Bruce Charlton came on. Uh, we had sort of Bruce was from Arizona, University of Arizona graduated. K-, K State was, um, had a landscape program. We hired Jerry Lynn, uh, he had a very close connection with the professor there. I think his name was Chip Winslow. Uh, and he would, uh, so when we were looking for more design talent, Gary would often call Chip Winslow and say, who in your program doesn't have a golfer and wants to be a golf architect? And we had several great leads through Chip and eventually hired uh, a, a guy named Ty Butler who came from K-State as well. Uh, but for them, from then on through, you know, the 1990s, 1980s and 90s, it was, uh, basically, myself and Gary Lynn and Bruce Charlton and Kyle Phillips were sort of the four principal project architects in the office. Gary, Gary, and I ended up doing mainly Asia work. Um, uh, Kyle, Kyle started working in Europe at that time, and Kyle and Bruce did most of the domestic domestic work. Um, so I, I've worked with all of those people through the years.
0: What percentage of your career has been spent on overseas projects, and where where is the profession taking you?
1: Well, uh, I'd uh, I'd say probably two thirds of the courses I've designed uh, are overseas. Uh, the bulk of those being Asia. Uh, I did one in South Africa and one in. And outside of Geneva. And, uh, well most of them were somewhere between Japan and Australia. Uh, and, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, Japan was building a lot of golf courses. Uh, and they were, in Japan, they were all private. The ones we were working on were all private clubs. In fact, I'm not sure how many public courses exist in Japan. I don't think it's a very high percentage. but. And they were all ex- expensive private clubs, very elaborate uh, clubhouses, and they came over and picked up U.S. architects. Back in back in that day, oh, at least more than half of the golf courses in the world were in the United States. I think it's something less than half now, but it's probably pretty close to s- still half. And so the rest of the world looked on the U.S. as sort of the golf experts and, and the golf talent, and they'd... Uh, the big projects would come to the United States for Golf Architectural Services, and John's office was one of the first uh, to really get interested in that and to cater to that. Uh, so we did a lot of work in Japan, and there you did have standalone golf courses. They weren't into housing projects. It was just definitely a country club. But the sites were very severe. You know, Japan's basically a mountain, top of a mountain. Uh, So the sites were severe, lots of heavy earthwork involved, uh, uh, lots of intriguing clients and restrictions. Japanese golf courses, uh, even though they were standalone, they had requirements uh, virtually everywhere we worked that you had to have tree lines between holes. You didn't end up with a big open field, uh, you ended up with sort of corridors of individual golf holes. I never did fully understand why that was the case. They always say government government requirement, government requirement uh, that you have trees between holes. Interestingly enough, when we worked in Japan years later, they also wanted trees between holes, but it wasn't. It wasn't uh, for any environmental reason or aesthetic reason. It was so people wouldn't see who was playing on the course. <laughs> most, <laughs> of the, most of the players were government officials uh, from the local districts, and they didn't want to be seen playing golf. And, uh, so, yeah, and then we walked all the way down through Australia. Of course, Australia's got gotten rich golf uh, history with lots of great, great golf courses and great golf sites and worked a lot in through the rest of Asia, Malaysia, Philippines, uh, all of all of that area, uh, did one in one in India, uh, Kashmir, all, all of those places, you uh, you deal with the locals to some degree. Of course, when you don't speak the languages, you're never quite sure. What's going on at any one time or what people were really saying or thinking? Japanese, you know, were very much a community, a communal system of decision making. It wasn't, it wasn't common for one senior guy to sit there and say, here's what we're going to do. They, they would have four or five or six people around the table all listening, all nodding their head. Yes. Yes. It didn't mean, yes, they agreed with you. It means, yes, they understood what you're saying. And then they'd come back and make a decision and say, "This is what this is the way we're going to do it." Uh, so all of those were it was all fascinating, uh, fascinating experiences. But as designers, you'd only be there probably, typically, maybe a week at the most at one time. Uh, the Jones Organization, like many people do today, put an on-site representative or an on-site project person, either construction supervisor or design coordinator, whatever they term, um, on site that will live there full time. And of course, those people really got involved in the culture. They lived in the local towns, in the local villages. Mm-hmm. Uh, we designers would drop in for three, four, five days at a time and then come back a month or six weeks later. So we weren't. We weren't as immersed in the local uh, cultures as the on-site people. But it was, it was still fascinating times, back back in the days before cell phones and computers. And
0: <laughs> I guess that was good and bad, not having a cell phone and computer, right?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was probably good and bad. Uh, I mean, there certainly advantages being able to cum- communicate. We, I think in the 70s we had fax machines, but that was about it. Um, you didn't, and uh, telephones. The telephones overseas, you go to the hotel and have to call the operator and ask for the place to call. And of course, you didn't speak Japanese, for example. And they spoke very little English. So just trying to get them to call the right telephone number was a bit of a task. And then they were very expensive phone calls as well. So now nowadays, you pick up your phone and send a text message, and somebody gets an email. Uh, so they were, it, it were different times. Yeah. And when you worked overseas in those days, probably still is the case. Uh, they expect you to know the answer to everything. And not like this country where if somebody asks you a, an agronomic question or a fertilizer question or something about seed, and you say, oh, well, let's call the USGA agronomist, let's get a." Let's get a hold of the seed company, which knows not the answer to that. A supplier that knows that, and you have all these resources you can go to immediately. Overseas, there's no such people around. They say, "What fertilizer we put on?" You know, they'd ask the architect. You know, we don't have to. We really don't answer that question here. We have somebody else to answer. But over there, you have to come up with an answer. It was an experience and enjoyable, and. Uh, Produced a lot of great golf courses in
0: those, those eras and that time overseas. It still exists today. I believe you and Gary Lynn started your firm in 1999. What has clicked between you two and how do you make it last so long with a partner and how rewarding has your work with him been?
1: Well, Gary and I have sort of compatible personalities. Maybe, maybe. Uh, still compatible and low-key, but um, Gary, Gary is a mid- Midwest boy, as you mentioned, he went to K-State, very detail-oriented, great project um, architect, and follow, following details. And, um, he and he and I, as mentioned before, ended up doing a lot of the work in Asia. You know, Once you do, a, if you're doing a project in Japan and another project in Japan comes up, it clearly makes sense. For the same person, they go to Project A and they're going to Project B while he's out there. So once you get involved in that market, is is significant enough, you end up being a person in Japan, for example. Uh, somebody else does the same thing going to Europe. So and we had enough work in Asia, but Gary went out there quite often as well. And so he and I both worked in Asia and traveled the same general territory. And had very compatible personalities and enjoyed each other's company, and we were both uh, ready to leave the Jones operation at the same time, so we, we started our our firm and have been doing it since. Although we're, we're now working out of separate locations, so uh, we, we got sold our office building in Mountain View, and each started out working out of the sort of the old startup garage routine, working out of an office in our house. Uh, I now live in Santa Cruz and work out of Santa Cruz. Gary's up in Seattle, Washington area, working out
0: of his house. I mean, so there you are working in California. California is obviously the epicenter of a lot of golf and water discussions, probably not only in the U.S., but across the world. How is that conversation between golf and water changed over the years? Is it more amplified now than when you first got in the business in the 1970s? It probably
1: started in the 70s, about the time I started in the business, uh, and the, uh, the whole environmental movement started in that era, and uh, water became one of the major issues. So water quality and uh, uh, was one issue, but water availability was the second issue. So for all all new courses, and there were a lot of new courses in that era, uh, it was a major issue on the, and during the approval process. Uh, since then, I mean, we've got very few courses now uh, under construction in California, and, and uh, but it, it, it's still it's still an issue, and it's becoming a cost issue. Well, most courses now in California uh, use effluent water. Uh, and that day most of them were using, you know, potable water, ground water. So it, it's, uh, it's 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 a, um, a bit less controversial from that point of view, but the use of water is still an issue, and it's an economic issue now. The cost of water is expensive, and clubs pay a significant amount of money per year for water, and they're all looking for ways to cut those costs. So... Using affluent water was one way to cut the costs, although it's now become almost as expensive as uh, domestic drinking water. Uh, so it, it's an issue on older clubs that are trying to reduce the amount of water they use. I mean, this turf reduction has been quite big in the industry now for at least a decade or so. A lot of courses into the turf reduction business, and um, new, newer projects. It's 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 still an issue along with all of the other environmental. Issues, but um, and it probably will get worse uh, unless um, California hasn't built any major reservoirs for water storage for years. Uh, but even if they did, I'm sure it would continue to be a an issue, uh, and it'll certainly only continue to be a financial issue, and maybe a bigger financial issue in the future.
0: Don, what can a golf course architect do tactically to help a facility reduce their water costs what are some things you can look at in areas where you can help a golf course
1: the first uh, issue is always look at the irrigation system itself and if it's an older system uh, what they call the block system or you know a single valve is controlling multiple heads the first thing to do is get to a modern system where you have a valve in each head so you can control every single sprinkler on the course independently and then properly set up that system. So um, head A may be on for three minutes, head B may be on for three and a half, and another one come on for four, uh, all independently. Mm-hmm. But the amount of time, uh, you know, it's a lot of handwork walking around the course and saying, this is a shady, wet area, let's cut back the time, this is a dry, sunny area exposed to the wind, let's add a little time to this head. But if you've got control of each single head, of course you can minimize the amount of water, or reduce the amount of water significantly, and all of the newer courses and most, most, you know, most older courses, if they've been around for more than 30 years, have put in an irrigation system which has valve and has control and computerized uh, control systems. So that that's one. That saves water itself, but then beyond that, the architect can say, what don't we need to water? How do we get rid of turf? Uh, do we really need to irrigate everything? And that can be easily done if it's a big site, uh, a standalone golf course. Uh, It's very difficult to do in a housing project. You get these older housing projects that have fairly small envelopes or single fairways and uh, eliminating turf, uh, pieces of turf becomes a problem. From, From a design point of view, you try to take a small area and turn it into, quote, native, unquote, uh, it often looks like somebody forgot to maintain it. It looks like hell, uh, because it's just a tiny piece that looks out of place. Uh, I mean, in order to really incorporate a natural look, ideally you have more native area than you have golf. So it looks like the golf holes are part of the natural environment, not that somebody pieces a natural environment into a golf course. And older courses, particularly real estate courses, which are most of them, have houses that would maintain yards right after the course. And if you come in and suggest, you know, taking 10, 10, 10 yards or 12 yards uh, beyond their fence and turning it into, quote, something major, natural, and then going back into the turf of the fairway, they say, ah, no, no, we're used to turf here. That looks like hell, this little tiny piece of weeds, as they would probably call it. But it's not an easy task. You can do selected areas typically around teas where you've got a, a lot more space, of, you know, non-pliable space that you can attempt to uh, turn into something, a uh, low-water-use environment. But making, it look, making it look natural is difficult, uh, unless you're starting from scratch on the very... As uh, standalone golf course. real estate golf well, courses are very difficult. Well, other than other than certain environments, you get into the desert with native, very nice, interesting native landscapes. I'm thinking of Arizona, Arizona deserts, and the houses pick up the same native, uh, by necessity, landscape because uh, they have no water. Uh, then, then it's a much easier task to make uh, non turf areas look like they should be there. Um, but reducing turf is one, and but I, again, primarily it's the control system, the irrigation system itself. It, well, it would help if we started shortening golf courses as well. Uh, you know, we we keep building longer and longer golf courses, and they keep consuming more space, not only in terms of length, but you. you in terms of width and the architects have always been concerned about liability issues and safety issues. And uh, so the longer we build them, the more surf grass areas we're going to have out there. Uh, I'm a big fan of shorter golf courses and um, the games getting carried away with length. But that, I guess, that's another
0: issue. How much patience do the golfers and homeowners need with native areas or low mo areas? And- how can the architect or superintendent temper the immediate expectations with those areas?
1: Well, it takes time. And, uh, yeah, yeah. If, if you're an existing development, uh, existing country club and houses, it's it, it's a, a tough sell to start with. And then growing in, if you've been around golf courses growing in, they look great when they're all dirt. and You plant the grass on them, and everything's nice and uniform and consistent and beautiful. And then the grass starts coming up and the weeds start coming up with it and they start to look like hell after about three months until you start mowing a lot of that out and, and manicuring in place. But uh, native areas take time. I mean, the, the best the best and cheapest solution is just let them sit there while Mother Nature takes over. I mean, we used to spend a lot of money on wetlands, for example, just trying to plant wetland plants and planting uh, plants, uh, four or five or six species of wetland plants and doing all sorts of things. And, in my experience, the bottom line is if you just went to the low low wet areas of the site to begin with and stripped strip all the topsoil with that native wetland seed in it and stockpiled it, reshaped your wetlands and spread that topsoil back out and let it sit there for three years, you'd have yourself a wetland without going to a huge expense and trying to manufacture one with, with um, nursery stock to begin with. but. In any native area, yeah, it's really an exercise of removing, removing vegetation you don't want, uh, letting the rest of it grow. I mean, Spanish Spanish Bay and El Beach area, we did that. Um, we were mandated by the Coastal Commission to use only native plants in, in the dune areas, and uh, they spent more more maintenance dollars maintaining. Quote the dunes, the rough, the non turf areas, let's say, than they spend on the turf areas. Most of their maintenance dollars went into those dunes trying to pull out non native plants and to establish native plants for at least the first eight, ten years of the existence of Spanish Maine. So it's, it's a, it's a time consuming process, and a lot of surrounding residents aren't going to like the look of it. Um, it's best to do it before you build housing uh, from the beginning, but it it can be done, but it takes, uh, it takes a
0: lot of time. It also takes some professional help. I mean, how tough is it to pull off uh, good-looking and native and LOMO areas that actually fit with the flow of play without the help of a golf course architect or landscape architect? Have you well, seen some of these done half hazard? and what's the consequences if you don't do them right?
1: Yeah, well, picking the areas, of course, is key. Uh, and uh, There are only selected areas where they're sort of far enough out of play that um, very few golfers will be impacted by the playing characteristics. But, I mean, the playing characteristics are one thing that's difficult to deal with, particularly on a tight course. But it's the visual aesthetics are probably even more difficult because you take, you know... Um, Ten-acre parcel, and you try to put in a one acre of quote native area, it, it can look completely out of place. Uh, even though it might be a nice-looking one acre, you say, why, why is it out here in the middle of this nice big grassy field? Um, so it, 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 it is a challenging, a challenging exercise. Uh, and I think a lot of course, I've seen some courses that uh, attempted to do native areas and you come back five years later and they've sort of disappeared again and turned back into grass. Um, others have managed to keep it keep it going and convince uh, the membership that it's the right thing to do. But uh, people that live around there are not necessarily members. I mean, even in golf projects, I don't know what the statistics are, but I, I doubt it. More than 20% of the people who live around a golf course are, are golfers. You know, it's only less than 10% in the general population, probably maybe double that in the golf front. golf-oriented golf real estate project. But most of them are not golfers and are interested more about what the course looks like. Unless, unless of course, they're paying for the water. Yeah, that's that's the incentive to the members. The lower the... Lower the cost of maintenance and there, thereby their, their dues, their monthly dues. But it's not it's not an easy task, and it takes the right, right piece of property and uh, and the right skill
0: and know how to do it. Don, what's uh, life like for you in 2022? What are some of your focuses and projects like these days? Well, it's, uh, Gary and I are both
1: semi-retired, <laughs> like, but by default, you know there's not a there's not a lot of new construction going on as you are well aware. Um, in fact, we're still losing I think four more courses every year in the U.S. than we're adding. Um, so new new projects are hard to come by. So most of course architects are doing uh, remodel projects and renovation projects. We we still have a couple of projects overseas were involved in, and uh, I'm doing a short course in McCall, Idaho, adding on to a full-length championship course I did 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and I'm enjoying that. I would I would love to do more short, fun, what I call fun, or actual playable courses for the average player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I'd love to do a course that had six... Six hole three loops of six holes you know returning six holes and you could play you could pay play and pay for either 6 12 or 18 which i I think would be popular you could cut cut down the time to play uh, for those people that didn't have the time to play 18 but the length is the most important thing you know average average golfers have no business on a golf course more than six thousand yards long you you' probably statistics, you know the average pro now hits the ball at 300 yards uh, off the tee, and they're playing with, for simple mathematics, a seventy seventy five hundred 7,500 yard course. Uh, they're they're playing a course is essentially 25 times their length of their drive. So they they hit a 300 yards, they can play a 7,500 yard course. But average players. They all claim they hit the ball 220 and 230, but most of them can't hit the ball over 200 yards. And if you multiply that times 25, you'll get 5,000 yards. And they're not even playing at 5,000. They're all trying to play 61, 62, 6,500 yard courses. Um, so they're playing way too long of courses, way longer than they need to be. The press, the media, the whole golf world should focus more on interesting unique uh, fun enjoyable courses much shorter can play in less time much more environmentally friendly take less maintenance you know just just in terms of maintenance alone. you know I've, I've often wondered what this game would if. If the golf bodies do bifurcate the rules, which I think will probably be inevitable, but if, if they had recreational rules, for example, that said you could play lift clean in place anywhere on the course, you could lift clean it and put it on any fairway, golfers could suddenly accept fairly poor conditions in fairways. They wouldn't have to be pristine, no down to a half an inch uniform, consistent carpets. Nobody would be concerned, because they could pick their ball up, move it over to a piece of turf, and keep going. Mm-hmm. That would probably save a considerable amount of money. Same way in a bunker. What if you could lift, clean, and place your ball in the bunker? you have a nice of bunker. You wouldn't complain about Friday glides, mm-hmm. maintenance. Guys would have to maintain them a lot less often and for a lot less cost. So, the golf world really needs to, in my opinion, uh, go back to shorter courses, more interesting courses, and ways ways to save money. I've always been concerned about the cost of golf, and uh, there are, there are a lot of great courses, particularly in the British Isles and elsewhere, that uh, nobody's ever heard of because they're short and they're but they're fantastic and interesting and and wonderful to play, uh, but they're not written up in the press very often.
0: Yeah, the elite players keep get getting better and better Don, and most of us keep staying the same or get worse.
1: We get worse as as you age. You're, probably, you're, you're not old enough to get into that category. as you age, you lose considerable length. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, as I say, golfers don't it. Ninety nine point nine percent of all golfers have no reason to be playing the course more than six thousand yards long, and probably shorter if they want, you know, psychologically to feel like they're really can play the game. If you put a golfer on a 5,500-yard 5, course and you didn't tell them the lengths, if you just said, here's hole number 1, 2, 3 through 18, go ahead and play, and they can, every hole, the longest part of four might be 330 yards long, but they, could, they, could, they know they can reach it given two shots uh, is in the bottom positive range around the possibility. They might come off the course, you know, shooting 78 feeling, gosh, I'm a, oh, damn near a pro. I shot 78. Or so what they're trying to play today, they couldn't shoot 90, probably. Um, anyway, that, that's a philosophical question. one 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 I hope the golf world can solve over time, but uh, they haven't. have been, they've been talking about it for 30 years, as you know.
0: Uh, yeah, if if we could find a way to remove ego from golf, I think you and I would be owning golf courses instead of talking about them and working on them.
1: Yeah, isn't it amazing, the yes. psychology of the game? I mean, it's
0: like you take a you can take a golf hole that's uh,
1: 280 yards long, it's, I call it a par 3, and nobody except the best pros could ever get near it. You put a lot of bunkers around it, and they'd say, this 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 terrible hole, it's you know, unplayable. And we'd say, well, okay, let's call it a par 4. Oh, this is an easy hole. <laughs> a three iron and the wedge shot, yeah, yeah wonderful for strategy hard, hard green small green, a lot of bunkers, well, what's the difference? i just one cut one guy's expecting to make three on the home, the next one they're expecting to make four one, The the golf hole. You know, so this, yeah the psychology of it has always been a huge factor so always always will be. Uh, I always thought it was an advantage for golfers to take up the game later in life when they had no expectations about it being great or good even. <laughs> well, basically like the pure joy of the game being outside.
0: <laughs> well, last thing here. Uh, how glad are you that you decided to design golf courses for a living instead of designing buildings?
1: Uh. Well, I, I got, you know, golf is an addictive game for those of us that play it often.
0: It's, uh, it's a
1: good addiction, uh, one that I enjoy. Uh, and when I got out of graduate school in 73, there was a bit of a recession in the building industry too. And, uh, I had, as I, said, I had an opportunity already there offered to me to do golf. So I said, okay, I'm going to run with golf. And I'm glad I did. Taking me around the world and, uh, many wonderful places and meeting many many wonderful people uh, I mean most of us in the business like you and me and others get the opportunity to play courses through the fact that we're in the business, courses that we never play if we were outside the business uh, and that's been a wonderful treat I mean I've played many of the great courses in the world and had I not been a golf architect I'm sure I would have
0: played very few of them, if any of them. Well, Don, this was a, a ton of fun. Uh, really glad to get you on the podcast, and, and thanks for taking the time to join us. But more importantly, thanks for everything you've done to make golf a better game for so many people around the world. Well, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing.